Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings. And welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom of Space. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Hello, this is Leslie Gish. You're listening to the Gist of Freedom. Uh, this is- we have a special show. Is this Mr. Cat? Yes. Hi, Mr. Um, Cat. I, I hope we're not on yet. Yes, you are. Okay, because I'm not sure uh, my friend Pompey Fixico has the right number. Okay. Is, is it possible for you to call him? Yes, Cause I, 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 I just dialed right the number now. that. Okay. Do you have his number or do you need it? I need it. Three two three seven 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 three three five four. Okay, well, I'm tr- trying to reach him. Could you just tell the audience what you guys are going to be talking about? I'm going to meet myself. Sure. I'll start as soon as you uh, uh, let me. Okay, this is William Lauren Katz, and tonight we have a very special program because I'm going to be interviewing Phil Pompey Fixico, who calls himself a semi-maroon, a semaroon, a mixture of the Seminole and maroon, based on the people of African and Native American descent in Florida, who formed the largest rainbow coalition that we know about in the early Americas. And we're going to be talking about his relatives, his ancestors, and we're going to be talking about the Seminole history. And if I can bring you up to date until he comes on, I'd like to read you part of this essay that introduces the topic that's going to be posted on my website uh, uh, in a day or two. Those who honor the memory of Paul Robeson, Martin Luther King Jr., and Malcolm X, and many others who gave their lives to advance the struggle for liberty and justice in the United States are invited to accept this Christmas or Kwanzaa gift for your memory bank. On Christmas Day, 1837, 176 years ago, African and Native American members of Florida's Seminole Nation defeated a vastly superior American invading army. Their victory stands as a milestone in the march of American liberty. 
though it reads like a Hollywood thriller, this amazing story has yet to capture public attention. You will not find it in any school textbook or curriculum or social studies course, Hollywood or TV movie. The seminal story, nevertheless, begins around the time of the American Revolution, as our 55 founding fathers broke free of British colonialism and wrote the immortal Declaration of Independence. Around that time, Seminole families suffering ethnic persecution under Creek rule in Alabama and Georgia fled south to seek independence. They were welcomed in Florida by African runaway slaves who earlier escaped southern bondage and became among its first pioneer residents. The Africans did more than offer Seminoles a haven. They instructed them in methods of rice cultivation they had learned in Senegambia and Sierra Leone, Africa. Then the two peoples of color forged a prosperous multicultural nation and a military alliance that was prepared to withstand the European invaders and their slave catchers. They were led by daring figures such as Osceola, Wildcat, and John Horse. Let me stop here and see if my friend Pompey Fixico is on the line. Yes, hi, Bill. I'm here. Good, good, Pompey. Okay. Uh, why don't you tell us something about your, your ancestors and your connection to this whole Seminole story? Hello? For some reason, he dropped. I don't know what happened. He dropped out. But maybe he'll call back in one second. He was just there. I don't know what happened. Okay. All right. Um, We're sorry about the... Yes. Yeah. Yes, Leslie? When he comes back in, I'll interrupt you. All right? Okay, good. So we're going to be talking about the Seminole Nation, which was a multicultural nation after 1776 because it combined two peoples of color, Africans and Native Americans. And these people were among the first, not only residents, but pioneer explorers of Florida. And their story, I think you'll agree when we finish, should not have been left out of the history books. Even more, it should be taught in our classes, because, for example, you cannot understand the history of Florida and even how the United States made Florida a part of the United States without understanding this black and red Seminole story. Uh, While we're waiting, let me just add a few things. Uh, The information I'll be talking about tonight is based on my book, Black Indians, A Hidden Heritage, and the new 2012 edition, which is expanded by another 100 pages. I can also give out my website for those people who want to read about it for free. There are many essays that I have up, and my website is williamlcats.com. Or you can just type in my name under a Google search, William Lauren Katz, and my website will come up. And as I say, there are many essays you can read about the Seminoles, other famous figures who are, have this mixed heritage, and so on. But okay, I'm here, Bill. Okay, Pompey. Did, did, did you hear my original question? 
Uh, I I didn't. My line is bad. I had to change phones here in California. Okay. 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 I'll just explain to the listeners that Pompey is in California, and I'm in New York City. And so we're going to ask you to put up with any technical difficulties we have. Okay, Pompey, I just gave a little background to the uh, Seminole Alliance that formed around the time of the American Revolution and fought the United States in three Seminole Wars. And I just wondered if you could start to talk about what you know of your relatives and their part in this history. Yes, uh, I, I, I can. Uh, my uh, my blood uh, relatives were uh, from the uh, what now is called the Miccosukee in the currently in the uh, nation of Oklahoma. It would be one of the bands, the fourteen bands. You have twelve by blood bands, and you ha- have one, and you have two um, what they call Freedmen band or Black Seminole band. So. Uh, uh, my uh, ancestors were, if, if you go back, the Seminoles were uh, um, a, a conglomeration of, of different groups that came together. And uh, Miccosukee, they were uh, those who were with Niamatla in uh, Town for the war, the, uh, the first Seminole War. Uh, they were attacked by officers from Fort Scott. It was a constant back and forth between the border um, retaliation. And uh, they, uh, the Miccosukee retaliating for things that had happened to them attacked uh, some troops on the Apalachicoli River. And this You're talking was, about uh, the U.S. border. Well, I'm, yes, I'm talking about, uh, yes, between the border of um, exactly, <laughs> and so this was uh, the uh, the excuse that President Andrew Jackson needed to um, mount his campaign. And uh, in the spring of 1818, he attacked. They had attacked before in 1816 Fort Negro which was a fort um, uh, 30 miles from the uh, Gulf on the Apalachicola River, was um, previously, uh, it had been um, stocked by Great Britain, but, you know, the War of 1812 ending in 1814, they left the weapons of fully stocked fort, and, uh, you know, black Indians and a few by-blood Indians took it over, and it became a a, um, a beacon for those uh, enslaved people uh, in the southern states of uh, Georgia, uh, in particular, uh, to escape to the Negro Fort. Of course, mm-hmm. it was destroyed by a um, in 1816. Uh, it, it there were about 340 people in it, and uh, the forces, the combined forces of um, the allies of uh, the U.S. at that time were Creek Indians and, and some of the Creeks and also uh, uh, naval forces and army forces, and they shot a, 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 a hot, a heated cannonball that rolled into the open door of the uh, 
uh, where their uh, their ammunition area, right? Yes, thank you. Where their ammunition was, and uh, it exploded and killed about 270 of the occupants, mostly women and children. And we have documented reports about how terrible it was by the soldiers of uh, themselves who uh, came in afterwards. And uh, and so my my ancestors who also that was the first Seminole War. The second Seminole War starting in 1835. Uh, my ancestors they were in um, Alabama fighting the Creek War in 1835, 1836. And in 1836, uh, the band was known as Oak de Archie, and they evacuated their village near West Point, Georgia, with a group of 66 men, 30 women, and 20 children. And uh, they settled uh, into Florida. And they stayed in Florida fighting that Second Seminole War until it was actually considered over. But in December of 1842, while they were visiting Fort Brooke under a flag of truce, even after the war was over, the soldiers said they took them captive, which there were many instances Mm -hmm. where they were captured under a flag of truce, and sent them to um, Indian Territory uh, via New Orleans. Right. Let, let me just uh, add for our our, our listeners, your, uh, Pompey Fixico is giving you a uh, kind of a blow-by-blow account of the part his relatives, his ancestors, played in the three Seminole Wars. Let me just fill in with, with a little specific information in case you're lost or you don't know much of this history, which few people do. Uh, This is the United States invading Florida. Florida was claimed by Spain, but it was very loosely governed. And the black and red Seminoles had really set up their homes there. They were bringing up their children. They had cattle. They had horses. They were raising crops. And as uh, Pompey pointed out, the first attack, well, it was slaveholder of posses riding in there trying to uh, recapture the slaves that they claimed had escaped. But the first major invasion he just described was in 1816, and it was a massive attack, Army, Navy, and Marines, U.S. Army, Navy, and Marines, on this Fort Negro. And as he said, a lucky cannonball hit the munitions dump, it blew up, and, and that's what happened there. And then in 1818, General Andrew Jackson, hero, we have him on, I forget what bill he's on, uh, actually invaded. And at that point, at that point, he he was able to, I'm laughing because he was able to persuade the Spanish officials, who hardly governed the area anyway, to sell Florida for $5 million. Okay, so that brings us up to the, toward the, Second Seminole War. I'll let you continue, Pompey, with with what your ancestors did. Yeah, what I want to say now, right now, I'm talking about the Indian or the by blood ancestors, and I'd like to touch on what my um, uh, Seminole Maroon ancestors did also. But continuing with the by blood, now they 
they fought starting out fighting in Alabama, 1835, and then they fled to Florida, 1836, where General Jessup, who had fought them in Alabama, he uh, by then was coming over to fight 1836, 1830, yes, to fight in Florida. Now, my ancestors, who were the uh, Oak de they were fighting so desperately until when they were captured at the end of the war, it's documented that a United States Army officer wanted to know where all of the children were. And an older, elder lady among the group uh, submitted the information that they had, it was a practice of killing or snuffing the children who were under two years old when they were fleeing this terrible uh, situation so that they would they were so desperate not to be caught. And they didn't yes. have children of that age range with them because they would snuff their children either by uh, suffocation or by drowning if they were hiding in water or whatever. And now my uh, maroon ancestors, they were coming out of the Alachua Plain area, which would, uh, this is where you had the groups known as under Chief Boles and mm-hmm. uh, under Chief Payne. And, and, and these names come down and uh, transferred over into Oklahoma. Whereas in uh, Alabama, you would have, uh, that's the Bruner side of my family, coming at creeks that fought with red sticks and uh, who, who, after, um, as early as the first Seminole War in the Creek um, Civil War, which has some very interesting points about that, the Creek Civil War for my family meant that, um, of course, this was the war of civilization with oftentimes it was pursued on the um, uh, American military side. They had um, mixed race uh, members who were very uh, powerful. And, you know, of course, those who had been brought up maybe even in Savannah or Charleston, uh, their fathers had been Scots-Irish because the British, uh, the Anglo-Saxon, of course, they could they could go to New York and uh, Boston, Philadelphia, but it seems as though the Scots-Irish went south and and found their fortune with the Indian tribes such as Macintosh and and was a very powerful name, and uh, in pursuing this war. Uh, this is where we have the legacy of Benjamin Hawkins, who was the first um, Indian agent, Bill, and he mm-hmm. was bringing civilization to the groups and the traditional um, members. The war was between the traditional Indians who didn't accept slavery and the who had acculturated and who were mixed, led by mixed breeds. And so the black 
Maroons, of course, they would have been fighting with the um, the traditional who who weren't uh, practicing uh, cattle or chattel slavery, shall we say? Yeah, let me just uh, pause once again to to in- interject something on the Second Seminole War. <clears throat> it was the uh, largest uh, war fought in Florida at the time during this whole period. And in the Second Seminole War, the United States were tr- was trying to crush or pacify, occupy Florida, and and pacify this dissident element, this armed African Native American Semeroon band of hundreds and hundreds of people. While, by the way, they had to move their families out of harm's way as they fought, quite a burden for any army. The United States on this spent $40 million, and that's $1840, not $2013. And it lost 1,500 men. That's military casualties. So this was the largest battle of the three Seminole Wars, and it it was a, a, a shocking defeat in many ways to the U.S. Armed Forces, which was, I think everybody has to understand, the strongest military and economic power in the in the Americas at the time. Okay, Pompey, if you want to go on about the Bruner family and so on. Yes, the Bruner family, they were coming out of the creeks of uh, Alabama. And uh, my great-grandfather is uh, Caesar Bruner, who is uh, one of the most famous... Uh, Seminole Freedman in Oklahoma because he was uh, the uh, one of the two interpreters for the 1865 truce that became the 1866 treaty that gave uh, that ended the war with the truce and and that and the treaty it, it determined the Indian rights that have come down today to be so prized by those who have an ancestor on the Dawes Road, which I was fortunate enough to have many ancestors on the Dawes Road, but those who don't, it's become a bone of contention that uh, their Indian blood was not counted. I think we have to, uh, Pompey, I think we have to explain what the Dawes Rolls are and how how they played an important part in the racial history of the of these nations, would you do that, Bill? You're the historian <laughs> in this conversation. Well, I'll put it as simply as possible. Uh, later on in the in the century, the United States began to formally deal with Native American nations by setting up a a kind of a litmus test of who was to be considered a member. And uh, they used blood, what are called blood quantum theories. You had to have so much blood uh, to be a member of the nation. And it was, it, it, this then was used to divide these, the five nations that were then in the Oklahoma Territory, not only the Seminoles, but the Chickasaws, the Choctaws, the Cherokees, and the Creeks. And it, it became a bone of contention ever since. But 
Pompey is, is saying that he, you know, his family got in under the under the uh, um, this blood quantum thing once again postulated by the United States government, and this was just one of the many things the United States government brought to bear on Native American nations who had a a very fine way of taking in members, making them part of the nation, whether they were born there, born into the nation, or were just taken in because they uh, judged you not by your skin color, not by where you came from or your ethnicity, but by whether you could be helpful to the nation was taking you in. Uh, Pompey, do you want to go on about about this thing? Because this raises the question about members who, are, who may not share the bloodline, but are nevertheless culturally a part of these different nations. Yes. Well, first I'd like to start it off by saying it all began when the uh, colonizers, they, with their policy of discovery, which basically said they can discover a land occupied by people and they can offer to buy it. If their offers refuse, they can then take it by conquest based on the fact that they say Indians can't own land. They can only occupy land. So the Indian culture was saying, no, we can't own land because land is our mother. We do not own our yes. mother. We hold this land in common. And if any member steps up and says, well, I want 40 acres over here, fine, go ahead. As long as that member can can cultivate and 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 live up to that 40 acres is fine. But if that member can't, then they say, well, I couldn't do it this year. I'll only take 20 acres. So it was a cultural um, gap. And, and, and so uh, when the concept of discovery, uh, I'm sorry, civilization after the uh, civil, um, Revolutionary War, you know, was decided, well, what are we going to do about the Indians, you know? Well, mm -hmm. uh, to uh, to wipe them out, cleanse them, it would be too expensive, and, you know, maybe it wouldn't be in our best interest. Why don't we civilize them? So they begin to say, okay, we're going to civilize you, like eventually the five civilized tribes uh, in Oklahoma, they would call that, because they adopted the dominant culture uh, ways. In particular, agriculture was was very important because that meant you're going to stop running over everybody's property, hunting these animals, and you're going to stay in one place, in your place, and you're going to raise crops, and you're going to use uh, slave, enslaved people and and you'll understand, whereas the Indian at that time said, well, hey, for centuries, men have been hunting and fishing all day and, and, and staying with their wife at night, while in the daytime, she grows enough crops to subsist us. Why on earth do we want to get all of this land 
and and round people up and do them and 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 turn them into um, cattle, chattel, enslaved people. Now Benjamin Hawkins was made the first Indian agent for those nations south of Ohio, and he literally would go from um, village to village and spend the night and wake up and say, why are these people still sleeping? These aren't your relatives. Get them up and get them out there to work. And so and he's talking. He was talking about the slaves, the that they, the people, people. Yes. Okay. He was teaching Indians how to be civilized. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think this is important. I just also add that by introducing slavery and trying to particularly introduce the harsh, brutal slavery of the white South. He was trying to, or when I say he, this Hawkins and the other representatives of the U.S. government were trying to cut off this escape route for black runaways by making the Native Americans a part of their slave-owning alliance. And, uh, and it was once again using this kind of divide and rule techniques, and it became in- injurious to the Native American nations because they were being asked to treat as cruelly as the white South did what were then their mothers and fathers and husbands, wives, and sisters and brothers. And an interesting thing, as you well know, Bill, about Benjamin Hawkins, who had been a uh, senator, congressman from North Carolina uh, after the Revolutionary War, Mm -hmm. his direct ancestor was Admiral John Hawkins, who initiated the transatlantic slave trade. Yeah, isn't that interesting how we see the lines (laughs) coming together here of the persecution of Native Americans seizing their land and they're going to Africa and kidnapping uh, people of color there and throwing them into the labor fields here in the Americas. Okay, and then so another point connected which illustrates this uh, lineage or how it was uh, handed down from generation to generation uh, is that Benjamin Hawkins, the um, Indian agent who was assigned to civilize uh, the uh, Indians, in particular the Creek Confederacy, when he, 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 he got two women of the Wynn, uh, we'll say highly placed uh, Native American women within the Creek Confederacy, and he had children by them. Now, this meant that these children would grow up with the dominant culture mentality and they would also have the highest right of inheritance of any Native American in, in that tribe. So mm-hmm. uh, one of the sons was a Benjamin Hawkins. He went to um, Texas. He hoped to create a empire of Indians and um, built on slavery. And he, he, he actually was going to expand it away from the East Coast past the Mississippi River. But he, you know, they bumped him off because there were other forces in um, 
Texas that did not want to see that happen. Uh, Yeah, what what I'd like to do now is is kind of bring to a a close, uh, uh, to some extent, this uh, focus we've had on Florida and, and go to and go to you. And, and I have some questions for you to answer uh, for the listening audience. But first, yes. let, let me say that the, the three Seminole Wars concluded in 1858. And that was just two years before the Civil War. And the Confederacy during the Civil War had a lot of trouble from the, from the Florida Semeroons. And now let me start with this, going back to you, Pompey. How would you describe your racial identity well normally <laughs> when i'm more on time for the interview I, I i make this statement to sort of put it in context go ahead uh, r- racial racially i'm african native american culturally i'm an aspiring seminole maroon descendant but to the people of america who see me on the street, I'm just another flavor of black. But I believe this conversation and this show can help change that. Very good, good. Now, when you use the word Semeroons, could you explain what you mean? Well, there's a little story to that. Uh, As you know, I only discovered my ancestry at 52 years of age. And uh, for Since that time, I'm 66 now, it's been a a journey of discovery, research, and activism. So early in those years, uh, after doing some um, discovery, I found my family's connection to the Oklahoma nation of Seminoles. And so, um, well, here's an example. I called, I spoke to the historical preservation officer, uh, whose name was also Bolaise. And I said, oh, Mr. Bolaise, I have a branch of my family treatise Bolaise. Does that mean we're related? He says, no, you were our slaves. There's no such thing as a black Seminole. So I, you know, I was staggered by that, and I didn't want to be part of something. So what I did uh, and, and my and I have relatives in the South who they only want to be called Texas Seminoles, mm-hmm. and they don't want to be called Black Seminoles. So what I said is, well, okay, I'm going to create uh, my own name. I'm going to be use creativity. So I took the S C M I of Seminole, and I added to the R-O-O-N of Maroon to say I'm Native American and I have African. I recognize both. There are some Seminoles of color who don't. It's You know, my cousin who is the chief of the Texas Seminoles, he says he has more in common with Mexicans and Native Americans than he does with Africans. So I created that name, and I mm-hmm. had it trademarked, Semarone. Okay. And, and and many other people in the country do use Seminole Maroon, but I had this trademarked so I could c- 
maintain the integrity of it. And basically, it means I'm respecting and identifying both my African and my Native American. What I say is Mama America. Mama America. Mommy, Mommy, we need milk. We need the milk of human kindness and understanding to realize that we're here now and that Africa is grandmother. But now we're here, we should choose America as mommy, mama, mommy, we need some milk. Okay. And I think you really started to also ask one of my questions here, which is what are the great lessons of the Samaroons? Well, um, <laughs> you know, I created a uh, what what I always said when I first started out is that Hitler showed us that race is a dead end street, but culture, uh, being tri- the definition I I accepted, was traditions, customs, and customs and habits that govern our behavior. Through the use of culture, we can find common ground with people that don't look like, think like, talk like, act like us, and mm-hmm. we can move forward through traditions, customs, and habits that we agree on. And so I would say that, of course, is one part of it. And uh, there is um, more to the Cimarron uh peace belt ceremony, but um, I would say that... (laughs) I I remember when we were in Florida together at that uh, conference in which uh, you introduced me when I gave the uh, keynote, uh, that you also, in a very dramatic moment, brought together two groups uh, who had been at loggerheads, should I say, for a long time. Could you just tell the, the audience who was involved in that and, uh, and and what that represented? Thank you, Bill. That, that's great. One of the participants was Sekou, who's a Yamasi uh, from uh, South Carolina and, you know, circulating down into Florida. The, the Yamasi was a group that uh, the uh, war, the Yamasi War of 1712 to 1715, they so pressed a British colony of the Carolinas until they were winning that war. But the Cherokees sided with the uh, the the colonists, and and so when they did that, that broke the back of the Yamasi. And they had to uh, flee and and find even different identities. Now uh, the uh, that's Sekou, but a very interesting character is the other. Uh, where we made the re uh, the reunification was Derek Hankerson. Right. This is going to knock you off your feet, but you know, Bill. Derek Hankerson 
is a conservative talk show producer who wants to be the first black Republican president and who mm-hmm. claims to us to be related to the Bush family. He is chairman right. of, of the Putnam County Tea Party, and he was the other half of this ceremony. And and what nation was he representing during that ceremony? He, he, he was representing Gullah Geechee uh, and okay. Black Seminole. Now, the Gullah Geechee are, these are the people that, uh, that uh, are, are, occupy the land that was the 40 acres and a mule land. It actually goes from Jackson, Florida, all the way up to Wilmington, uh, North Carolina, and 30 miles in from the coast. That's called the Gullah Geechee Corridor. It is so it was all along. It was along that stretch of the Atlantic coast that they operated. Okay. Yeah, that they and, and now it, the thing is that black uh, that uh, black Seminoles were Gullah Geechee pioneers who left and came down into Florida to benefit from um, King Carlos II in 1693. He issued an edict uh, because he was competing, of course, with the British colonies of uh, the Carolinas, but he issued an edict that he would give asylum to enslaved people that ran away and came in and accepted to be militia and ran, be, ran away from the British colonies. Ran away from the thank you, Bill. <laughs> he ran away from the British colonies into Spain, the territory of Spain, and uh, that started up quite a, a migration. That when we talk about migrations, this should be one of the most important migrations that we talk about because. Uh, it was a form of the Underground Railroad, but it ran south. Yes. Now, very, very important. Well, let, let's move on up because I'm not sure whether we may be getting some calls and questions. So I kind of want to wind things up with some other points. You talk, for example, about transcendence. What do you mean by that? Yes. Transcendence. Uh, you know, there was a um, a paper written by a doctor, uh, Von Robertson, and he used the a, uh, a construct by um, a sociologist from the early uh, 20th century that spoke about rejection of one group of another. And so he applied it to what happened to the black Seminoles uh, when the uh, by blood Seminoles rejected them, as I told you what happened in that yes. conversation to me. Now, uh, transcendence is one of four responses mentioned in this Estelusty Marginality paper by Dr. Von Robinson. He's a pan-Africanist, so he has his own opinions on it. And And what it says is that blacks, usually respond in one of four ways when they are rejected by by blood. Number one, some of them return to their own group. That's called return. 
Number two is poise. Others say, well, I know I've got Indian blood, whether they accept me or not. Number three is assimilation, which means overcoming the, t- the target group's non-acceptance by finding a way to fit in. And finally, transcendence. Now, I consider myself to be the advocate of transcendence. While it was mentioned by Dr. Von Robinson, he's a pan-Africanist. He doesn't want to do with transcendence what I want to do. And I say transcendence is to rise above the rejection of what uh, uh, black Indians, the rejection and rise above what black Indians feel is owed them by forming our own groups, our own indigenous-like groups, by creating a culture. If you don't have oral history, then take, I mean, if all you have is oral history, then elevate that. Take your story to a notary and say it. and Get uh, witnesses of stature in the community to write it. Let that be part of your family reunion table talk. And, and make it, turn it into documents. I also want to extend from this the creation. I hope that this creates a, a, a cultural renaissance similar to the Harlem Renaissance. Instead of using the new Negro, we would use the African Native American as described by the Smithsonian Institution's indivisible book and exhibit, and William Katz's Black Indians, we should take these two uh, very important lessons in our history, who we were, and we should, we should start there and begin to create our own indigenous-like groups. Let, let me ask you this question, because this all often comes up. Uh, when uh, we're on programs together and or, or separately. Why is this history, this black Indian history, so important? Well, it's so important, in my opinion, because we have to, right now, it's connected with, with people who were once 100% of the U.S. population, and now they're only about 1.5%. They were pushed to the brink of extinction in, in, a, in, a, in a great sense. But yet, what you have is the first and the forced. We must revisit how we came together, and we must look at their holocaust, and we must look at the effects of slavery. If we do this, I believe that African Americans and African Native Americans can finally have our emotional coming to America. Mama America, mommy, we need some milk, the milk of human kindness and understanding that our culture was destroyed, and we have to go through a rebuilding process of sharing and comparing because it was two nature people, and, and, and they did come together. And even if in many instances they're not together now, there's still a lot that can be done at looking at all of the indigenous people, in particular of the Americas, because I feel it was, you know, the Maroon story is it was one event, 
the colonizers came and they brought enslaved people. And some of them would not accept the slavery. Others showed creative resistance while being in enslaved. And, and, and it was pivotal and crucial that they had Native Americans and indigenous people to, to flee to and, or to at least uh, see how they were uh, living here. So it's very important. I think you would probably agree with me that one of the great lessons coming out of this, not only for people of African or Native American descent, but European descent and whatever descent here in the Americas, is that this is a story of a fight for freedom. And it was carried on long before people like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and uh, Tom Paine and the others we refer to as our founding fathers <clears throat> hit on the idea of breaking free from England and writing immortal words about all being created equal. Yes. Now, I have a cousin in the uh, Washington, D.C. area, uh, and uh, Ben and uh, Denise Welch. Denise is a Muskoga, and and, and and showing you the she's so supportive and wow is she a fighter they're retired military but the Muskogas this means that once the uh, the the Maroons won their freedom from Florida and went through Oklahoma there was still people who were attempting to go back on that promise and the John Horse Wildcat group they yes left in 1849, mm -hmm. and by 1850, they had made it into Mexico. Nacimiento de uh, los Negros, the birth of the Negroes, right. that, that's the name of it. And, and uh, Denise, her ancestors went all the way there. And what would have been pain, she, her family would have been pain here, but once they crossed into Mexico, came Vasquez, and they became other versions of pain. Uh, there's about three different names. So Mexico had played a pivotal part, too, in allowing for asylum and standing, not uh, extraditing these people, and they paid a terrible price with having half of their country taken. And we must never right. forget that. And that's why John Horse said, you know, uh, we don't even let our little children fight with the Mexican children. Porque la gente de México dieron bienvenidos con los brazos abiertos. The people of Mexico welcome us with open arms. What, and what you're also pointing out is that this story is an international story. And the, the, your Semeroon, uh, people, they did not accept the borders that, that either Spain or the United States was drawing. And some of them, I think we remember, uh, we heard about at that conference in Florida together, you know, went out into the Caribbean, settled in Cuba, the Bahamas, and so on. So this is really an international fight for freedom and across borders that the Europeans had conveniently drawn for themselves. I want to stop here for a moment. Uh, you, you know, neither you or I are in the studio, and I don't know 
if there are any calls have come in. But I think, you know, we would be willing to take any calls if people had uh, had questions for us. Oh, yeah. If not, if not, I'll ask another question or two and we'll wind <laughs> up. <laughs> okay. Do we have any questions, Leslie? Okay, I'm not, I'm not hearing an answer. Let, let me let you uh, s- summarize or make a final statement. What would you like to say, Pompey? Well, my final statement is that concerning the cultural renaissance, it should be, in my vision, in my dream, in my air castle, it should be an all-inclusive cultural renaissance. And we have to be sensitive about Native American and, you know, the um, appropriation versus inspiration aspect. Are you appropriating our history, something that, Mm-hmm. You know, we created, and and I think that it would be good if anyone, black Indians, I feel, have a license to participate and publicly uh, uh, demonstrate their um, uh, their desire to experience their culture. Because, like me, I'm Seminole and I'm African American, or you know, they have, I feel. A license. Even the United Nations says you can't stop someone from, uh, you know, uh, practicing their heritage. But I would like to see it spread to other people. If you have reenactors who uh, are doing this uh, a lot, I'd like for them to be able to have a relationship with the people that they're reenacting, where they can get. Some type of, uh, they can say, well, we've studied classes here and we, you know, uh, can you give us a paper? Can you give us a a light version of a license to say that you recognize that culturally we are studying the correct principles of who you were as a people? And I would like to see people of all races respect the indigenous and respect that era of of the uh, the black enslavement and the Indian Holocaust, and if we can come together and face that, then I think you know we've made another step, and and so that's mm-hmm. what I'm feeling right now. Well, that's that's a fine summary, and I would also, you know, you uh, modestly forgot to add that. You know, people who are among our first freedom fighters have a lot to offer the rest of us. You know, you all were here doing this, uh, you know, long before these uh, 55 white men came together in Philadelphia and wrote the immortal words. And that's something that really I, I think you and I would agree should be taught in all our schools and, you know, find a place in our, our TV programs and Hollywood movies. Uh, maybe, maybe that'll begin to happen. Well, at this point, I think I want to wind up by saying you've been listening to Phil Pompey Fixico talk about his ancestors that go back to the three Seminole Wars of the early 19th century. Uh, my name is William Lauren Katz. You may know me through my book, Black Indians or others of my 40 books. My website is WilliamLKatz.com. And there you can also find an announcement 
that uh, Pompey and I, we call it the Pompey and Bill Show, are available to do other interviews uh, on other programs because we believe this message, is it, it has to get out there. It's important for everybody, the members of the groups involved and those who even were not involved but need to know it as part of their, their growing up and learning in America. And I want to thank you all for listening. And Pompey, it was great being on with you again and having your wisdom. Bill, it's always a pleasure and an honor. As you know, I call you the father of black Indian history in America. You have been a fighter for right, and even your dad was. But I still say about you, Bill, Mr. William L. Katz, the best thing about you is your wife, Laurie. <laughs> Laurie! <laughs> I'll, I'll tell her. She's sitting right in back of me when we, we, we finish. <laughs> okay. Hi, Laurie. Great talking. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Great talking, and we'll be in touch. Take Bye. care. Bye. You too. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.